0: Welcome to We Are Chaffee Looking Upstream, a conversational podcast of humanness, community, and well-being based in Chafee County, Colorado. I'm Adam Williams. Today I'm talking with Eric S. Lee, Executive Director of Full Circle Restorative Justice based in Salida, Colorado. He's also an author and a man who has a rich history of entrepreneurship and service to others. Eric and I get into some good and deep waters in this conversation. He has published three books. The most recent is titled 29 Degrees, How to Live a Life of Inner Peace, Joy, and Purpose Regardless of Circumstances. So naturally, we talk about inner peace. We talk about meditation and other practices for getting to know our higher selves. That takes us into conversation about God and spirituality. Now, as you might have heard me say in a previous conversation on this podcast, and as you will in this one, talking about God and religion, it can feel like a dicey topic area for me. But I do love to get into a reflective, insightful conversation with someone like Eric about spirituality. It brings an honest, humble, and inclusive perspective. It's not dogma. It's about self-awareness. And to me, it's as simple as thinking about how we can do our best by ourselves as individuals and for each other to make life more meaningful and more connected. We talk about how Eric came to his spiritual interests and practices as a young man who had found himself struggling with a partying lifestyle that was not compatible with that higher self kind of life. We talk about Detroit and the Motown era of his early years and other influences in his life as a kid coming up there in the 1960s and 70s. And ultimately, we come around to his role now in our community through his work in restorative justice, particularly with youth. Oh, and we also find out what challenges Eric's inner peace. If you're a Michigan Wolverines fan like he is, you already know where this is headed. We are Chafee Looking Upstream as a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority and it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. Show notes, including the transcript of today's conversation and relevant links, are on this episode's webpage at wearechafey.org. Now, here we go with Eric S. Lee. Eric, we've got some fantastic stuff to talk about today. I appreciate that you gifted me a copy of your most recent book, 29 Degrees. I've read it. I've spent time with it. It's right up my alley when you're talking about inner peace, spirituality, all kinds of things like that. Big stuff that we're going to jump into. But before we do, all right, thanks for being here, by the way. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about Detroit. Okay. That's where you came up. You know, I think every city big big city major city in the country probably evokes some idea in people's minds nationally detroit is a city that has a feel i think i'm curious what your take on that is and and maybe going back to when you grew up there i think probably 60s 70s
1: yeah i first of all i love detroit and and i love it i love it i love it it just it just isn't the place that i wanted to live all the time I find myself drawn back there more now for a variety of reasons. Um, one big one is my family's still back there. Uh, well, a lot of my family's still in there. My my brother, who I'm probably closest with in my family, is back there. And so I spend a lot of time visiting Detroit. And as far as I'm going to go through the perception and then kind of go through back to my childhood and, and what it was like growing up. Um the national perception for the longest has been you know and i'll say to people sometimes i'm from detroit and they kind of look to look at me with pity going oh my (laughs) god you know you got out like it was you know vietnam or (laughs) afghanistan or something and You know, I don't go into it a whole lot depending on who I'm talking to. If I'm having a substantive conversation with somebody, I will. But if it's just kind of in passing, I just kind of let it go and let them believe what they will. Um, Like a lot of big cities, I mean, there's a lot of people that have experienced trauma, and and that kind of ties with the work that i'm doing and and through that trauma they begin to act out and you know some of the trauma is tied to lack of resources and kids not having adequate mentorship and all those type of things and so there is in certain areas an element of danger or crime like i think any big city and like any big city you have to know how to be in that space and you, you got to know what spaces to avoid at certain times especially. And, you know, once you get that, it's, you're perfectly fine. And then on the other side of that is that there are so many hardworking, creative, brilliant, community-oriented people there that don't get seen that a lot of detroit and its soul gets lost i mean you know you think of motown and the creativity that came out of there and there's still good music coming out of detroit um i remember it must have been maybe three or four or five years ago uh detroit had a big storm and a flood the flood and the power was knocked out on, I don't know, I think it was like 65% of the city for a couple of days. And I called my brother, I was calling my brother every day to check up on him, see how he's doing. And he was like, man, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's a terrible inconvenience. And, you know, we're, 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 we're struggling to, you know, get the food and get gas and all that kind of stuff. But the thing about it is, it's like you go to gas stations and some of the gas stations were shut down because they didn't have power. And there were people siphoning gas out of their cars to give it to people who needed oh, wow. it. Mm. And giving people rides where they needed to go that were complete strangers. And so, I mean, there's that community there that doesn't get seen, that doesn't get talked about, and, and the good-heartedness. And, the, and, you know, it's the Motor City, so there's this, also this blue-collar hard-working mentality that undergirds all of that as well and you know you just can't take it for what the perception is and on top of that over the last 10 years or so detroit has been undergoing a renaissance where there's a lot more money coming in downtown's vibrant and alive businesses are flourishing and so it's detroit is really coming back right now
0: i want to come back to your growing up there because i'm really curious about that Mm -hmm. but Maybe as a little bit of context for where my question came from, Mm. I lived in St. Louis for a dozen years, and I feel like there's a similarity between those cities, and in part, during the time that I lived there, it was one city or the other that seemed to be listed each year as murder capital or crime capital in some way, and I understood how that in St. Louis felt like a misnomer, and it was unfair. I think St. Louis is a great city. I enjoyed my time there. So I feel like in that way, there's a a kindred ship between St. Louis and Detroit and how some of those neighborhoods, when you had white flight back in the fifties and the whatever it was that left just neighborhoods destroyed and then ultimately empty when buildings get cleared out Mm -hmm. and Detroit went through some of those things or still is probably in in plenty of the area. Mm -hmm. So I understand that grassroots community you're talking about too, and that creativity and there's energy there Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah there is and and again that's why i love to go back and you know my kids will tell you you know we had this trip where they were teenagers we rented a van a 12 passenger van we loaded all the kids up and we drove back we stopped in chicago my 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 uncle lives in chicago we drove up the coast we came back down to detroit they called it the love tour in retrospect and (laughs) you know my kids have been to italy they've been You know, Miami Beach, Vegas, Southern California. uh, And they said that that trip was the best trip they could have ever dreamed of. And, you know, it was just, it was vibrant and alive the whole time. Awesome. Yeah.
0: So about that childhood. Mm -hmm. I'm right with 60s, 70s, right? Mm -hmm. And you brought up Motown. I'm glad you did because I was going to. Mm -hmm. That's really during that heyday stretch with Motown and so many of the amazing artists whose names we still talk about. I mean, I I think, I mean, yeah, Gladys Knight, right? Diana Ross, Jackson Five, there's actually, you know, I looked up, I thought James Brown would be part of that and he wasn't Mm -mm. from my understanding. But anyway, I'm wondering about the influence of that and if that was in your house and if that was, I don't know, uh, uh, something you gravitated to and felt and were
1: aware of and maybe even took pride in because
0: that's my city.
1: Yes. You know, anything that comes out of Detroit, Detroiters take pride in Aretha Franklin Motown temptation all all that Um, I remember going to the park that was two blocks from my house and Aretha Franklin was there you know at a baseball game with her son (laughs) you know and it just Gladys Knight you know I was walking in Northland Mall and Gladys Knight was walking out of Northland so I would come across those people and um, I never saw Stevie Wonder just casual like that, but seeing him multiple times downtown performing when he was little Stevie Wonder, and this was in the 60s when I was tiny. And it seemed like the 60s, and I was really young in the 60s. I was six, seven, eight years old in the 60s. And then everything was like really vibrant and alive, really creative. Motown was flourishing. And then the 68 riots hit Mm, okay and that's when it seemed everything turned because from you know late 60s through mid 80s it really was getting bad then it it took a turn where financially things started turning down um and, and that had to do with some recession things and you know, Reagan and trick, I don't want to get political, but trickle down economics didn't really help Detroit. Um, It hurt more than anything. I don't think it helped anywhere ultimately, but sure, go ahead. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and I don't want to make a judgment, but it just, you know, economically, Detroit took a hit and people started losing work. Um, The Japanese auto industry started really making headway importing, we started importing a lot of, gas-saving Japanese cars and the American auto industry was slow to respond to that and so lots of layoffs happened because of that because the auto industry was it and when that started taking a hit everybody started taking a hit losing sure. houses yeah were were those
0: riots was that in response to Martin Luther King Jr. Malcolm X were there other factors that I mean obviously the the 60s in, in general 68 in particular, we're at the height of some stuff societally and politically and with the war and just all the things. Do you remember specific
1: motivations for that? Well, you know, our country was headed towards that inflection point for a long time. I mean, I think think it was probably 10 or 15 years, well, longer than that, but that I can identify with the civil rights movement. And you mentioned Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and all of those civil rights activists being really active, making progress, standing up for human rights. And, you know, there was first, I think Kennedy got killed first. Yeah. 63. Yes. Kennedy got killed first. And then, Martin Luther King got killed after that. Oh, Bobby Kennedy was in 68 as well. Yeah, and I think it was around Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King that it really just exploded. And especially more, more Martin Luther King than Bobby Kennedy because I can't remember which one came first.
0: I don't um, either. I think, I,
1: think it was, I think it was Kennedy. I think it was King that got assassinated first okay but right after that assassination I, I remember like the next day i was staying with my grandma and that next day the t- city just blew up and I, re- I remember seeing tanks rolling down the street hmm. and just you know company of soldiers and you know gunshots going off and my grandmother telling us she hit the deck basically and State home because she was afraid of stray bullets coming through the window Sure. And you were really young then, as you already said. So, I mean,
0: these memories really made an imprint. Yeah. Yeah, they're there. Okay. Well, I'm curious, other than that as well, then, let's talk about things related to your family and the, the, I mean, neighborhood, community, whatever it was that influenced you as a kid. And we've brought up Motown and, you know, my, my greatest connection with Motown Um, I'm a bit younger than you, maybe 15 or so years. Mm -hmm. My connection with Motown would be really through soundtracks with movies that come from that era, Mm -hmm. right? So they're going to, you know, if if you play a a Vietnam War movie, you're going to get a certain era of music, Rolling Stones and whoever from Motown. But for you, what was that sort of, you're a teenager during that time. You're becoming a young man during that time. Just what were all those influences around you? Um you know, just in who you then maybe you know as shaping factors. That's what I like to call them and look at in who you would become.
1: You know, I don't think, you know that that time period and all those influence for sure were foundational on who I am and who I become. Um, I remember, you know, early seventies just being really. I remember crying. Because my older brother, who's eight years older than me, had to register for the draft for Vietnam, and that was like 1970. Okay. And I was just, I mean, I had seen the images and heard the stories and saw people who had gone and come back, and they had literally lost their minds, you know, and were on the street because they couldn't function. And I just remember being really impacted by the fear of that as a, as a young teen. And then, you know, the the other thing, you know, as that started subsiding was the other part of the sixties that that wasn't so tumultuous was just, you know, the, the free love and the hippie stuff that was going, the hippie (laughs) movement that was going on and, and the drugs that were going on, you know? And so, As I grew into the late 70s and became a teenager, the influence was, you know, smoking pot and every other thing you can get your hands on and just kind of being a a party mammal for a time until, until I reached a point where I just couldn't stand myself anymore because I had just gone too far off a ledge. And, you know, experiencing that had more to do with me turning around and really finding my spirituality and and reaching for the highest version of who i am is just kind of just the the almost the unconscious mindless accumulation of self-destructiveness that was condoned from say the late 60s through the 70s that really led me to saying okay life is more than this and i'm meant to do more than this did your parents
0: were they people you would say were role models in the (laughs) sense of you can you can be more like or or were they struggling as well like what was what gave you the belief
1: i can be more than this i can do more that was that's a Great question, and I laughed because when you said, you know, I thought you were going someplace else, but you went someplace else. Um, my parents were caught up. I mean, one of the things that I noticed and is is I always have to watch myself and just not judge and try to understand what everybody's experience is, is the generation before me really got jacked up with racism and oppression and the generation before before them even more so and all of that was passed down to us and it was somewhat contradictory because yes they experienced these things yes it impacted where we were how we were how much we we were able to accompl- they were able to accomplish how much they were able to uh, provide for us but as we were coming up it was it was kinda I'm not gonna say completely dismantled but it was diminishing slowly and so our experiences in my generation weren't nearly as intense as theirs was but at the same time you know our parents are our biggest influences and so they're giving us, you know, have you ever seen the movie The, the Jerk with Steve Martin? Yeah, yeah. And he's telling, he's this white dude who <laughs> was raised by blacks saying, don't trust whitey, don't trust whitey. You know, right. it's like, so, I mean, it was that type of stuff going on. But at the same time, and my mom and dad were a little bit different. My mom was like, some of her best friends were white people and just the sweetest people you'd ever want to know. And so on one side, I'm hearing, don't trust Whitey. And the next breath, some white person's walking in the house and they're hugging and laughing and joking and having a good old time. And and so it forced me to kind of find who I was and how I fit in this picture. And again part of what I, where I was going at is they were impacted by racism and oppression. And it kind of limit, limited what they were able to achieve. And maybe what they saw would be possible for you? Did they believe in that? Well, I think they did. I think that what they were modeling was there's a cap on what you can accomplish. Okay. But what they were consciously telling me is go out and do whatever you can want to do because you can and so I was getting a mixed message Mm -hmm. it was like okay go and do whatever you can do you can do it we believe in you but you know all of us can't do that and we don't know how much we really believe that but we're going to tell you that because we don't want to hold you back sure so I mean that was part of what I had to overcome as I went through my growth process it was like okay because I had internal message, I mean, years of therapy, years of self-help, years of meditation and everything, just identifying the limiting beliefs in me so that I could overcome those limiting visions that I was raised with. Right.
0: I think self-belief, uh, th- that's a, a topic that I think about quite a bit, actually, as I try to process within myself, why, why have I maybe had more pessimistic views about my limitations. How do I gain trust in believing mm-hmm. everything is possible? And I don't know. I still don't know where that comes from, but when we're raised in a certain way, they have certain mindsets and, and oftentimes for good reasons, right? Like you're saying there was oppression. There, there were things that gave them the perspectives that they had. Why should they believe you were going to have any better? Mm-hmm. But I can appreciate that they didn't tell you, you couldn't. They said go give it a shot
1: <laughs> not till later I, 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 and again my mom and dad were a little different um my dad was hit harder when he was a youth because he was out on his own at eighth grade and actually dropped dropped out at eighth grade and so his life was a lot harder than my mom's was though he you know went to the army came out he had a he had you know a decent job i mean he worked for the post office so yeah, You know, middle income type of situation. But then there was just destructive habits like drugs and smoking and alcohol and all those other things that really may have held them back more than any of the external circumstances were. And I remember after I had moved to Colorado, I was married. I had a restaurant. I had a coaching practice. Most of my clients in my coaching practice were white. Um, I was really successful. I had two great little kids and my dad called me and he's like, how's it going? And I'm like, it's going great. And, and this is another one of those phrases like don't trust whitey that that some black that I heard all growing up. And I said, how you doing dad? He got, he goes, I'm doing all right. White man still ahead. (laughs) <laughs> and he would I mean I heard that phrase my whole life I mean going up, it just didn't pay attention it just my uncles would say it to each other people walking down the street white man still you know just we're never gonna get by you know we're never gonna elevate ourselves and he said that and I, and I I'm looking at my life and I said dad I don't know I think the, I think the score is at least tied right now <laughs> 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 you know and he was so wrapped up in what he believed, he started yelling at me that that I was like insane to even think that I could be equal to white people, and he ended up hanging up on me because it's uh-huh. like I was I I was standing my ground. It's like you know I had begun to I mean I was well at that point into my spiritual journey, and you know listening and studying. As many teachers as I could find, and the message was crystal clear to me that this isn't the difference. That our skin and how we look and our exterior isn't the difference. What's in our heart and our head is what the difference is, and I had begun to master that and share it with other people, many of which who who were my, who were white. And so there was no way I could see from my perspective and and take that on that we as a people were less than anybody because we're all made from the same stuff. It's about all of us kind of addressing and acknowledging whatever trauma or experiences had shaped and molded us and planted those limitations in us. And it was individual. It was on our individual selves to do that work and overcome it. And also there was work to be done collectively as well. I think each culture has to overcome its own sense of limitations and trauma so that they can really be all that we are meant to be.
0: What you're saying there about your dad and describing, of course, he's taking that from a certain place of experience. He's taking that from a certain cultural or social who he's surrounded by. And this is what everybody's saying. Mm-hmm. It's how everybody feels. It's just an understood truth in their their eyes. Mm-hmm. And then you go to a different group of people who have a different understood truth, fact, mm-hmm. solid. Just what what is there to question here? And anytime we question someone's truth, it it hits, right? Like it, it upsets them. It it upsets all of us. Um, And and it hits that ego and it hits what our understanding of the world is. And I've, I've decided that that understanding, having some sort of clarity, having certainty is so important. It seems to humans as, you know, in general, finding what our labels are and our lines and our boundaries and all the rules and understanding because if all that goes away and everything is just up in the air and uncertain, now I don't, how do I make sense of life? How do I make sense of you? How do I make sense of me? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And that's the tricky thing in the work that I do because, you know, you know, there are those who have different, different views, that think that we're already there, that, you know, there's, they're they're out there, you know, racism doesn't really exist anymore. That was a period in our history that doesn't affect us anymore. We're all equal and that sort of thing. And, you know, there are other people who are going, wait, no, there's just systemic things going on here that are keeping certain groups of people, from achieving all that they can. And so you've got those going on there, right? And so I, I tend to be a little more progressive thinking, um, but at the same time, it's hard for me. It's, well, it's not hard. I'll just say that it's something that I have to be conscious of, that, yes, there's systemic things going on. But yes, each individual has the power to overcome whatever circumstance that is placed in front of them if they go as deeply within themselves as they can and find out who they really are and the power that really drives them that makes us all equal. And yes, at some point there were systemic things put in place to keep groups of people down. But once any individual in that group realizes who they really are, the effects of those systemic policies are deeply diminished. And so my balance in the work I do is finding the balance between addressing those systemic imbalances while at the same time acknowledging the power in the individuals who are being adversely affected by them so that they really know who they are and they really can reach for the highest version of themselves and believe that is possible
0: you keep using the word spiritual spirituality those are words that i connect with those there are experiences and practices i connect with there but in your book 29 degrees the word god is used throughout mm-hmm. I'd have to say that if only six, seven years ago, had someone handed me a book with the word God in it all throughout the pages, I might not have read it. Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have read it. I would have, I have a very complicated sort of feeling about it, or I did. Mm -hmm. I look at what you wrote there, who you are from what I can tell so far, and what we're able to talk about today. And I relish the opportunity to talk about this with mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is several years ago, we wouldn't be talking about this topic quite possibly in this conversation. Right. And so I'm curious, when you say God, when you say spirituality, is there a distinction? Is there the same
1: thing? What do those things mean to you? Um, I think I think God, and, and, and in the book, I, I do kind of preface that. And, and say that okay sure, yes. th- there are p- people like you six or seven years ago that may pick this book up I say God because that's what's comfortable for me you may say nature you may say you may, you may say whatever the higher power or whatever you believe in maybe you don't believe anything and maybe you think everything just naturally occurs well that's great but you know the wind's there and you can't see it so there's something that's driving some of these things that are going on. I mean there there's, there's There's magnetic forces that help and gravitational forces that help the world spin. And I think that people who are even um, either agnostic or atheist have a faith in certain things. I think that they have a a faith when they go to sleep at night that they set their alarm because they have faith that they're going to wake up. And they also have faith that, you know, the sun's going to come up in the morning, and certain things are going to happen. It doesn't have to be a faith in God, but there's certain things that are happening, happening, and they have faith that their heart's going to beat, and they have no power in saying, okay, beep beep beep." beep. You know what I mean? So, God is the source to me, and it's, it's the source that's driving all of this in the universe. And to me, spirituality is the active practice of aligning with that source, and you know, I, I kind of believe that the source is moving us and mu- moving the universe, u- moving our galaxy, moving our solar system in certain direction, in certain patterns. And, and sometimes when we don't have faith, we try to fight against those patterns. And that is a lot of times the source of, of our dismay.
0: I think that's where we come back to the idea that we need things to be certain and we need to have certain lines and boundaries and things that our limited human brains can comprehend. Mm-hmm. I need certainty. Mm-hmm. Even if I say I'm religious and I go to church, in that way, my faith is lacking because I don't have, you know, the certain, you know, belief and understanding. If
1: we make it too mysterious, you know, right? Yeah, I think I've come to a place where I don't, I don't have to know. And and, and again, I make a, a big point in my book. And one of the biggest breakthroughs for me was one having faith that being in alignment with so, with Source or the divine or God or whatever you want to call it gives me a faith that that my higher good is what's at work here that even if it's an obstacle or challenge that seems jacked up there's something really good that's going on here and in retrospect looking back a hundred percent of the experience of my life there was something good that happened that I look back and says wow that was great that that happened then because it brought me here or brought me there and led me to this opportunity or that opportunity uh, and sometimes I'm able to close the gap in the experience that seems like it's a challenge or seems like it's messed up and say, this isn't messed up. And I can reframe it and see what the good is right then. Or if I can, not the biggest breakthrough was to say, I don't know what this is, but I believe at some point I'm going to look back and say, this is the best thing that's happened to me for some reason. And and I can sit in that and have confidence and feel good about it. Yeah, I'm human. Yeah, there's times where, you know, I get anxious or stressed out or stuff happens. But I can really, most of the time, self-correct to the place where I can be not knowing what a situation is, what it means, but have faith that it's working for my higher good and the good of others and the planet.
0: Those stories, those examples, and that perspective in that book
1: really resonate for me because I would
0: agree that what I've learned to do is look back at anything that I thought maybe was a bad job situation or maybe a job I didn't get or a house that we wanted to to get or a move to make. Things that don't come together, ultimately, when we look back, we see where we got to and how things played out. And my wife and I, so many times over the 20 years we've been together— Look at that and say, "Oh wow! What if, what if that would have happened? So glad this happened." Mm-hmm. So those examples in there, I completely um, can connect with, mm-hmm. and it comes down to that attitude. Um, and again, maybe that is faith. You know, you gave examples of faith that I haven't really thought about. It's really getting down to that micro level of saying, "I set the alarm in the morning because I believe I'm going to wake up. Mm-hmm. Well, why should I do that? Well, I, I have faith in it." Mm-hmm. I don't control it, but I, you know, there's this assumption that we make Mm -hmm. and I haven't really thought about that as, as faith in that way before. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Where did this come from for you? Was it, was there religion? Was there going to church every Sunday? Was it your parents saying, Hey, you know, get on your knees and pray before bed every night? Or was this kind of a, a discovery path of your own? As you mentioned earlier, you've been partying a lot and it's like, I can do better.
1: It was 1988 and I was coming to the apex of my party life doing all sorts of things that were completely self-destructive and that year my mom came to my brother and I and she said there's only one thing I want for my birthday I want you to go to this unity church with me this Sunday and we went to that church that Sunday for her birthday and I was high. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't high that day. I was kind of hungover from the night before. Okay. So I, I, I mean, didn't wake up and start using, but the night before, so I was, I was kind of exhausted and and and, and just beat up. And the message in that church, and it wasn't, you know, a, a traditional Christian church. The message was everything basically that I've been talking about here. That, you know. We are and, and the guy the men, Jack Bowling was the guy's name, and he was a recovering alcoholic and he would he gave this sermon and he basically was looking at us, going, "You know God is on your side, and you don't understand sometimes how you are aligned with that source and how powerful you are, and you can accomplish everything so I really wasn't into." traditional christianity and um you know paying praise to the lord and savior jesus christ and all that kind of stuff not that that's wrong but it's just not what spoke to me what spoke to me was a power that was a part of all of us that fueled us and inspired us and lifted us higher when we thought we couldn't go higher and it was non-denominational and that's what it was and then come to find out that church would have its wind it would have a sunday service and a wednesday service and the wednesday service it would be like zig ziglar deepak chopra um and just all these high level self-help who's the chicken for the soup um i can't remember oh yeah chicken soup for the soul the guy i it'll it'll come to me but but Authors like that and inspiring leaders like that were the, were the voices that would come to this church and speak. And I started going to those, those Wednesday services and getting these inspirational messages. And that is like when I just like I stopped drinking, smoking, doing drugs and everything the next week hmm. because of these messages. And it just kept building from there. So it was from that. And I just kind of immersed myself in that type of material. And, you know, shortly after I went to my first therapist and started really digging in to see what these messages were and why I was doing the actions I was taking and why I didn't believe in myself and all these things. And it really became, you know, the next 15 years of self-exploration, self-examination, self-discovery and and self-improvement. You've been meditating since around that time too i think right i started meditating about a year maybe two years after that so we're talking
0: i mean that's more than 30 years yeah of what i mean what, what is that practice is
1: it daily is it wh- uh, how do you go about it i wake up make a cup of tea go back meditate for half an hour every day um if i can find time at lunchtime or not if i can find time if i make time at lunchtime i'll meditate at lunchtime or, or sometime in the afternoon as well for 15 minutes or so then.
0: Is there a particular method of that that you have come to? There are so many ways of practicing meditation. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious how you go about it. And and then also as an extension to that question, just the place of that in your life, what it means, what it's brought to you. You've been continuing it. This
1: is a long time. Yeah. It know, means at,
0: something to you, clearly.
1: Yeah, at first it was just a way to kind of practice getting to the silence um, and practicing you know if when I'm focusing on my breathing and I'm just focused on my breath that's what I'm focused on but like any human you know thoughts just incessantly jump into my brain and you know the practice was just basically learning to notice the thoughts learning to recognize that those thoughts weren't me so they weren't something that could drive me to anxiousness like it does so many people and like it had done to me in the past and so when i could recognize that i'm not necessarily the, the thoughts that are coming to my mind but there's they're just almost like visitors coming to try to influence me or to try to get me anxious or to try to get me to remember something but just to let them go and and this wasn't the time and and then the it was almost like a game where i was trying to see how long in silence I could go before the next thought comes. And sometimes it's, you know, half a second, sometimes it's five or six seconds. And just learning to be in that silence was bringing me more and more peace as I went through my days and I approached my life. And I also recall that I became much more creative and messages would come to me I mean, that's how my first book came to me. Well, that was more like a dream, but it was like the the inspiration and the discipline for my creative endeavors came because I created space for that silence. Um, and recently I've switched. Within the last year, I switched what I'm trying to do. Uh, I started listening to this gentleman named Joe Dispenza. And what he has me doing now is just kind of you know being becoming aware of every part of my body first and that's the first part of my my meditation practice and then the second part of it i just kind of go to each chakra i sense the color i sense the energy of the chakra and then i you know once i hit hit all seven chakras just kind of see how all that energy is blending to form my aura and just recognize that i am more than physical, that I'm probably, I am more spiritual, more energy than physical, and getting in touch with that. And then the last piece is just feeling the space of different parts of my body as it orients in space, feeling my head, how that is in space, my chest cavity, how it is in space, the space around it, and then trying to kind of melt the barrier between the space that I occupy and the space that's surrounded me so that it all becomes one. And just kind of, when I'm going through that and I'm conscious of that, you know, thoughts really come and go a lot more easily. And I'm in a space that is peaceful without thought a lot more naturally.
0: A line that I've been encountering, I think kind of more frequently lately is we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. And that came to mind as you're describing all of this, the aura and the energy around being a spiritual being embodied in a human body, a human experience. Mm -hmm. I've been meditating for five or six years and I talked about meditation on a previous conversation on this podcast with Jenny Davis, who is a practicing Buddhist. Mm. And I brought up the idea of how I think a lot of times people struggle with the idea of meditation. They might say, oh, I've tried it once or twice. I was really horrible at it. And she had a great take on this because the reason people say they're horrible at it is, well, my thoughts keep interfering. I can't I can't get quiet. I can't just sit there. And she said, but noticing those thoughts coming in is actually practice that mm-hmm. you're actually maybe really good at it if mm-hmm. you look at it in that way mm-hmm. and i thought that was kind of an amazing take on that yes. as well yeah
1: and and that's that's huge because then and this is this is where you start to move more into the spiritual realm and in a higher power realm it's like and and the first person that asked me this question what it wasn't talking to me specifically but it was in a book and he would say it again in a lot of talks is okay you're noticing you get to a point of you're noticing your thoughts right so then you have to ask yourself the questions who's that who's noticing who what is that and, and I don't have a good answer for that. But I know just asking that question pulls me out of the limited view of who I am right here. That there's something more to me than just this blood, flesh, and bones. There's, there's something spiritual that's that's higher than me that's more connected with, with everything than just this individual Eric. So a lot of what we're
0: talking about here, and I said is what's described in your book, is neutral judgment. It's, it's neutrality. It's things are not good or bad. We tend to look at things in, the, in this binary way, right? That's a word that's really common right now, especially as it relates to gender, but it's about how we look at either or throughout all of life. Good, mm-hmm. bad, black, white, you know, dark light, but the way i look at it is we know darkness because we know light and vice versa we know war because we know peace and mm-hmm. so on it's it's these it's these opposite spectrum ends these binaries that we actually need i think mm-hmm. to balance each other and you were referring to that um, a little bit ago with the book and just how, and and I was responding to that. Well, if you don't get the job you think you want to have or whatever circumstance, right? Well, ultimately, maybe a better job is coming, a better opportunity for you in your life. Mm-hmm. This is going to seem like a random question, but I know that basketball was a sport for you. It was my favorite sport. I loved it mm-hmm. more than anything for many years when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And as a sports enthusiast, someone who still is an athlete, someone who watches sports, I'm connecting this to the spirituality thing and this idea of good and bad in the way that our professional athletes, we watch, handle it, Uh press conferences, news interviews, they hit the game winning shot, point to the sky in an interview, man, God bless me today or you know. It's God's will, that sort of thinking. But you don't ever hear the guy who missed the shot saying, hey, it was God's plan. I'm cool with this, right? Because I don't think fans are cool with that, right? They want somebody who's aggressive and bloodthirsty. (laughs) We don't look at the good things that happen in our life and the bad things that happen equally. We don't all say that's God's plan. That's that energy of the universe and source. Yeah. And I just wonder your take. Have you ever noticed that in interviews, like why are why is everybody in sports always focused on? It's only God if it's good.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna address that indirectly. Um, so I was having a conversation with my daughter about um, about spirituality because my daughter she 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 is she is a spiritual dynamo she's an activist and she's 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 like me i mean she's she's just this beautiful just angel right and so she's deeply into spirituality she's deeply into um finding her higher ground and i'm i'm you know as her dad a bit of a mentor to her and she knows that i meditate and she she she's always inquiring about that and she always wants to know how i Figure how i managed to stay calm through just about every circumstance and, and all that stuff and even the you know this conversation here it's like you know i'm like this this spiritual guy right <laughs> it's like who, who wrote this spiritual self-help book and i and i told i told her i was like yeah i'm really calm until michigan loses to ohio state then <laughs> shit's gonna hit <laughs> so (laughs) unless it's my team losing i'm okay right and so i was just kind of kidding but it's true that in sports it's different and you know on my birthday a couple years ago my 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 oldest son who was in la and he's doing acting and all this stuff so he he organizes this roast of dad so they they roast dad and he goes and talks about how i wrote this spiritual book and you know everybody thinks i'm this buddha type character where you know they weren't him missing a layup in fifth grade while dad was coaching the team (laughs) 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 and so uh so yeah sports sports the point is sports does things to us that take us out of our spirituality which i think over time i have grown to get better at i still get affected by you know sports events and stuff like tonight i'll be at tv rooting for the nuggets and against the lakers you know um but ultimately it's the same thing and 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 ultimately a lot of times when you miss that shot or when you lose that game or you know if you get an injury that sometimes it's because you were called to do something else that you got that injury, Mm. something more meaningful. Um, Maybe you lost that game because there was some part of yourself, your skill set or the team and the dynamic that needed to be looked at and increased and grown through that's going to put you in a better place down the line. And so with sports, too, I'm able to eventually see... Two, I don't know why this is good, but I think that, you know, there's some growth opportunities here at least. And, you know, there are some athletes that I've seen after a, a loss of a game or something that take that tact. But I think that that's applicable to sports as well as much as anything else.
0: There's something else in your book that I it's death. The topic is death. I'm glad that was there. It's something I've been thinking about wanting to be able to talk about with someone here on this podcast, because I think it's something we don't pay enough attention to. We're talking about a lot to do with spirituality, and in my understanding and current connection and belief with this, it has a role in preparing us for these concepts of death detachment, depending on what your beliefs are, Mm -hmm. detaching from ego and the idea of this one life, this one incarnation as human beings, and just not fearing that. There's so much fear around it. I'm curious your thoughts um, on death, where we stand, whether that's individually, whether that's as a society, and what the practice there might be in the lesson if you go back into your book for us and say this was what you were trying to get at with that what is it we maybe need to be thinking about death that we're too afraid to even look it in the face and and acknowledge
1: so <laughs> yeah death was one where it was like i was writing the book and it was like it was like always there going okay you know you're doing different aspects of life you've got to do death but <laughs> you don't really want to cuz it's death you know and, th- and there is all this fear and unknown about it and you know i just i think going through that chapter there was a couple things that i wanted to accomplish or i wanted to get across and one of them is that there's so much unknown about it and there's 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 this view this contradictory About death and why we're afraid of it, and especially if you're engaged in any of the mainstream religions or most of them, there's this creation of an afterlife that is somewhat like paradise, and in different variations in different religions. I mean, there's heaven, and you know, there's paradise, and then you know, there's all these great. Thing. I mean, you live forever, land of milk and honey, angels flying around, and, and all this wonderful experience that happens after you die. But people are begging for their lives. I mean, if you watch movies and people are getting ready to die, they're begging for their lives and they, they don't want to go to death because they want to be here and they may be miserable here. so why would you, <laughs> why would you beg for this and you're anxious you know and you have panic attacks when you can just die and go to heaven or wherever it is that your religion dictates and be in paradise eternally right What's that fear all about so one. I'm going to challenge you, if you are of a religious persuasion, to go deeply into your religious religion, whatever that says, and truly have faith in that, that if death comes, you're about to go someplace that's better than Disneyland, and that's how we should approach it, right? Or or not should, because I don't want to dictate to anybody what they should do, but consider it, because... That's what your faith says that you should do. And then the other thing that I wanted to get across was if you don't have that, if you're an atheist or agnostic or whatever, and you believe that you just die and it's done. Yeah, you may have a little bit more fear around that experience. But at the same time, that's giving you a lot more inspiration and fuel to live right now. To, to suck every bit of enjoyment out of this life that you can right now without reservation. Don't hold back anything. And then, you know, the overarching, I think, theme that I tried to get at with that with everybody is just that. That, yeah, we have this experience as we know it for a finite amount of time. In this physical body yeah you know we can argue that our souls or spirits live on and it's eternal or whatever but I get to get be Eric you get to be Adam this time just like this only one time and so those people that we love the experiences that we have the friendships we share all of those things are just are just gold and we should treat them like that until the time that we can't treat them like that anymore and in that way, I think if there is a fear around death or, or that, that anything that death gives us fear around, we can, we can overcome it with, with the vibrance and spirit with which we live our lives today.
0: I think a willingness to accept death as part of life does give more of that energy to how we live this life. And I think for myself that the fear aspect maybe is not specific to me and losing my life as much as it is my attachments to my wife and sons, for Mm -hmm. example. Yes. So that's something that I work with. Mm -hmm. And it goes so against our conventional thinking to say, as if death doesn't matter, well, what if one of my kids were to die? And young and before me and all and and of course, that feels like such I, I don't even know how to survive that. I couldn't imagine I hope I never have to right And in that more spiritual place, if that's where we place the idea of truth and reality of experience, in those brief moments, I can you know think, but we all have that journey ahead of us. And it's not this egoic, human-based sort of thing that we've placed so much fear into, right? Mm-hmm. That would mean even for my kids, theoretically, that's a big challenge when it comes to being this limited human who's thinking about these things that are so beyond really the almost the comprehension of our brains. It's so challenging. And, th- and that's why I say it's practice, right? Because we can't flip a switch and have sudden understanding or certainty.
1: It's a constant struggle to work with these ideas. Right. And, you know, I don't, I haven't had the experience of losing a child. And I, and I brought this up in the book. And it's like, I don't want to pretend to try to tell a, a person who has lost a child or lost anyone really that they shouldn't grieve, how to grieve, or any of that because that is also personal. And, and I can't imagine the grief that's around some of the circumstances like that. And at the same time, I would like to ask the question, you know, and, and and also affirm something that you brought up earlier, and that is one, we are creatures who like to have some certainty around things and we want understanding. And sometimes we don't understand. And and it's just like, you know, you may be headed, you know, west up the road towards a fire. And I'm be going. What the heck is that dude doing? Headed towards the fire, and and I'm asking the question that way because I don't understand what your path is. I don't know that you have people that you're going to save or try to find or whatever into that fire. So it's really hard for any of us to make a judgment about what an individual's path is. And and this is the spiritual side of me that that there's something there's a purpose coded in us there's there's a contribution that we were meant to make in our unique way uh, that only we were to make and you know in some cases we can't understand what that path is especially if it involves someone dying and we don't know what the meaning of that dying person's life was what the message in their death was what the message that they were sent to us to deliver about what their life was before they died and if we look at their life that way instead of the fina- the seeming finality of them no longer being in this incarnation then maybe we understand a little bit more about them and draw a little bit more appreciation about their incarnation and how they've impacted us.
0: You also asked the question, uh, at least in the book, you brought it up, and I think maybe you have done it with clients that you have coached. And that is, if you had only six months to live, what would you do? I'm going to make a leap here and assume that you have given some thought to that yourself do you have a sense of what that might be now what your answer now might be if you only had 6 months? What what gets the importance in your focus?
1: I am I, w- I would I am extremely blessed in that I would one continue doing the work that I'm doing. Um I may turn up the heat a little bit to try to get some things done faster and also create a strong succession plan for leadership in our organization so i can the work can continue on but i would make sure that a lot of the time would be spent just with the people that i love the family and friends that i cherish i would spend as much time with them as possible doing all kind of things that we want to do together whatever that is
0: you mentioned organization that's where we're going to go here to wrap up is having to do with your work as executive director of Full Circle Restorative Justice. Mm-hmm. Let's start with what is restorative justice mm-hmm. um, as a concept and then as a practice and, and function and how you how you use that.
1: Mm-hmm. So res- Full Circle Restorative Justice is um, – well, first of all, restorative justice is an alternative to the traditional justice system. The traditional justice system is punitive. Restorative justice is restorative or relational, where we try to give offenders, we call them responsible parties, the opportunity to accept responsibility for their actions and then repair any harms done, either to a victim if it's their victim involved. A lot of times that harm is done to themselves. And so, you know, it it kind of fits with me in, in my coaching practice and my realizations about things and 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 that what we've realized is a lot of the participants are coming from places of trauma or dysfunction or some toxicity. And we try to get them to one recognize their part in why they're here and then get them the help that they need to heal from those harms that have been placed upon them that put them in the position to make the decision they made to do something outside the law in the first place. And so it's a way to, you know, impact people who are responsible for harmful or criminal activity and gives them a path to self-development and growth and healing instead of a punitive system that basically sends them on a corner with other. Uh, people who have committed crimes or criminals that end up teaching them how to be better criminals. And so we find it is the most impactful way to administer justice. And, you know, our focus is on youth right now, although we do take adult cases. But we, we really want to both impact the youth to come through our program, giving them another option and another path for the rest of their lives, being one of purpose and meaning and also making sure the community stays safer overall so that we can grow as a society and a community to a more um, purpose driven, community driven and supportive one in the future. The word that comes to mind
0: most strongly with hearing how you're describing that is compassion. Mm -hmm. It's an approach of compassion and treating these people, these, whether they're kids or whoever, who are the responsible parties, as humans, and teaching and coaching and bringing them along, mentoring, helping them repair connections, create connections, Mm -hmm. and that that's not society-wide what we're used to when we think of the word justice. You know, justice often, I think, evokes this idea of, like you said, well, you said punitive, of punishment, Mm -hmm. of an authoritarian figure coming down on you. Mm -hmm. I don't know why we have such a disconnect collectively Mm. and don't see maybe that compassion and true rehabilitation, right? That word gets used with our justice system. Mm. I'm not sure. I'm not an expert there, but I'm not sure how often it's actually got a role. Like you said, you get these people together and you treat them the way you treat them. They actually, many of them come out only having solidified in their current skill set that evades the law in whatever ways that,
1: that they find as as means in their lives, and and there's da- data that backs that up. That you know, if if you take if you take a, a particularly youth, and you arrest him and you label him a criminal and you send him through the traditional criminal system, what you've done is you've created another criminal, which you've then just made the community more unsafe than safer, and not that you've lost a person, but you've lost an opportunity to direct that person towards being a contributing member of society and you use the word compassion and i think that's a great word and you know another word another word is that it's it's practical and it's frugal i mean because it's like okay first of all it's it's more impactful because you're encouraging somebody to take responsibility for what they've done where the other system you know people are getting a lawyer and saying i didn't do it get me out of here Right. So which one is more likely to turn an internal corner and really transform themselves into the best version of themselves, not somebody who's trying to get out of trouble just for the sake of getting out of trouble? And then the other thing is, if you if you take all of that stuff and then you take the data that backs it up, that, you know, you create less criminals with restorative justice than the traditional system, so it's a more practical solution if you look at it in the long term.
0: I'm thinking about the stories we tell. When you you describe for that example, we take this kid, we label him a criminal. Now that's the story that that person's going to tell him or herself. Well, I'm a criminal. They decided this. I'm, a, I'm a bad seed, bad mm-hmm. guy. I do bad things, mm-hmm. and that starts writing the story going forward. Mm-hmm. And that phrase, the stories we tell, is something that I'm familiar with in spiritual practices and learning because what we're all needing to do is unlearn the stories we have spent a lifetime up to this point telling ourselves. This is what my parents said I was when I was 10, when I was 15, when I was 20. I was a loser. I was this. I was that. I was a quitter, whatever. Like, how do you break out of that? And the first thing is that I think we have to be able to acknowledge those were stories I told, but that does not mean that's who I am. It is not necessarily the story going
1: forward. Right. And, and that's, you know, what, what we're trying to do at Full Circle is create um, a comprehensive system that, that, that the restorative justice piece is just a part of it. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's that inflection point with a person. But again, as effective as restorative justice has shown itself to be, it is still just a snapshot in time. And so that person coming out of that still has that message running through their brain. So, you know, a lot of our narrative to funders and and people who want to donate is that we're trying to make sure we have the resources for people to overcome all of those messages through therapy, through coaching, through um, whatever. Sometimes it's drug rehab. It's all type of ongoing support, mental health services and human growth services that will help the person, it could be meditation. Um, some of it is like, you know, we have agreement items in our budget where some of the the, the youth come through and they couldn't afford jujitsu lessons or they couldn't afford to go to cra- trade school. So, you know, they, they're in a hopeless situation and they don't see a way out of it. And we want to bridge that gap with the resources so that not only do they get the mental health services that they, that they need, but they also just get the self-development pieces and the pieces of life that just make them human so that they can pursue a path that helps them feel more human and go after a path and purpose.
0: Eric, I want to thank you for everything that you've shared here. I know we could have taken this conversation in so many directions. There's mm. a lot more about your story that um, I know hints of, and I would have loved to have gone there. And maybe we can do that over coffee another day. Yeah, so I'd love to. But I appreciate everything you've shared here and and introducing yourself to this area, to Chafee
1: County, with the work you're doing with restorative justice. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I, I love Chafee County. I love being here. It's just, it's just a blessing and a dream come true. Absolutely. I agree. Thank you. Right. Thank you.
0: Okay. That was Eric S. P., Executive Director of Full Circle Restorative Justice in Salida, Colorado. If our conversation here today sparked curiosity for you, you can learn more in this episode's show notes at wearechafee.org. If you have comments or know someone in Chafee County, Colorado, who I should consider talking with on the podcast, you can email us at info at We invite you to rate and review the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use with that functionality. We also invite you to tell others about the Looking Upstream podcast. Help us to keep growing community and connection through conversations like these. Once again, I'm Adam Williams, host, producer, and photographer. John Prey is engineer and producer. And thank you to KHN 106.9 FM Community Radio, where we recorded today's conversation in Salida, Colorado. To Heather Gorby for graphic and web design. To Andrea Karlstrom, Director of Chafee County Public Health and Environment. And to Lisa Martin, Community Advocacy Coordinator for the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative. Again, the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority. And it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. You can learn more about the Looking Upstream podcast and related storytelling initiatives at wearechafee.org and on Instagram and Facebook at Mm wearechafee. Lastly, thank you for listening. And remember, as we say here at We Are Chafee, be human, share stories, share stories, make change.